welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here. Hope you're having a coronavirus-free afternoon. Today on the show, I've got Victoria Jackson, former Saturday Night Live star Victoria Jackson on the show. Uh, you may know her best from her six-year stint on SNL, but did you know she was on The Tonight Show more than 20 times? Did you know she did that all despite not having a TV set in her house when she was growing up? We'll get into all that and a little bit more with Victoria here in just a second. I did want to say thanks to our Patreon supporter for this episode, who is Chester Goad. Chester, man. Way to go, buddy. And not only did he sponsor the podcast today through Patreon, he left a nice review, which I'll read at the end of the show. I thank you, Chester, for doing both of those things and for supporting the podcast so more folks can catch on to it. And now we're going to get right into it with Victoria Jackson. I am sitting across from Victoria Jackson. How is it going? Well, I'm very excited to be on your show. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, and thanks for being here, and thanks for working into your schedule, because I know you've got things going on. I'm such a busy person. I just had to squish it in between <laughs> my important, important meetings. <laughs> well, I, I know I've wanted to have you on the show for a while, and um, but I haven't got to cross paths as, as much as I thought we would since you moved here. But we have a couple times uh, at the Huckabee mm-hmm. Show and at a couple of church shows here and there. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to finally get a chance to sit down and hang out a little bit. You're way busier than me. You have three towns you're going to in the next five days. <laughs> you all- have two kids that <laughs> yeah. aren't grown up yet. Yeah. You're a comedy teacher. I do teach. And and I went to your class. You did. What'd you think? I think you're a great <laughs> teacher. I'm so much more funny now. <laughs> and what did I ask you? I asked you the end of a joke. I wanted you to write an end of a joke for me. While we keep talking, I'll think of what the joke is. Okay, if you remember, let me know, and we'll see if we ever finished it out. Oh, yeah, I remember. But you're taking some other classes now, is that correct? I just started um, Lipscomb University. I'm trying to get my master's in film because I was bored, and I really wanted to be in a community of creative people. And and where I live, it's kind of quiet. And so uh, I am now with a bunch of creative types, and I love it. What's the? And I'm learning behind the camera. I never learned that part. What has that taught you as far as how to be on the other side of it? What have you learned as f- from learned, the director? Okay, this is what I've learned. The fun part is the acting and performing. The business side is extremely boring and disgusting. I hate it. I hate hearing about what percentage the investor is going to make. After blah blah blah, right. when the teacher says numbers, my brain shuts off. So you're I don't care. Hundred percent creative side of it. I th- I'm trying to learn the boring part, but <laughs> I don't know. I think that uh, I fell into the the fun part of it, and I should have stayed there. So at, at Lipscomb, what what is the? I'm sure there's many courses, but which ones are you taking right now? I'm ta- well. Last semester, I took editing. Have Have you learned Premiere Pro? No. Have but you learned iMovie on your laptop? I use this odd thing called Camtasia. It's uh, 
it's it's basically was designed for screen capture and for tutorial videos, but it does everything I needed at its 4K. It's got all kinds of transitions. So I've learned in there. I never heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's more of like a corporate world kind of tool than it is a creative thing, but it does everything. Well, see, editing was a new frontier to me, and I cried, and I banged my head on the wall, and I told my teacher I'm quitting, and the next day I woke up and I said, I'm not a quitter, Luke 137, for with God nothing is impossible, and I got back in there, and it's really fun skill to have, because you make your own music videos and stuff. So did you, for the project that you're editing, did were you on the other side for the on camera part and now you're editing it or is it somebody else's one of our homework assignments uh in my production class was film yourself in no not yourself film a music video and i wanted to do my own song because i'm like why should i get someone with a song i have a song right right. so i did it all but i wanted to tell you lipscomb let us borrow the five million dollar camera and it was so stressful for me. The day I had to borrow it out of the cage, it was raining all day, and I was lugging the camera and the mic and the this and the that. I finally get to the place. Uh, it was the factory uh-huh. in in Franklin. The uh, now the factory. So I I tried to shoot a video there once, and in the middle of it, they shut us down because we had to ask them permission. Did yeah. you ask ahead of time? Did you I, know to do that? I did know. I asked permission, and they said no. I'm like, but, but, but I used to be on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> right. No, no, not allowed. So they said I could go outside, and it was raining. But I did pay a little bit of money to go inside the Little Brick Theater, which mm-hmm. is now called the Nightingale. Yeah, That's like the 90-seater. Yeah. Yeah, that's and a great he, space. So I paid a little bit of money and got to use that stage. So... Film is a very expensive hobby. It's only for the rich or for big churches or I don't know. How do people afford to do it? Well, if you're getting a full cast and editors and all that thing, it does add up. Most people now that are shooting their own stuff, well, you know, in in stand-up, the hardest thing to get is a good tape. Just because the great crowd, all of a sudden somebody sat down right in front of your camera. Or, you know, you have great setup and you're paying people to record it and it's it's not a great crowd or something else happens. Or they're a great crowd and your guy who's filming you forgot to mic the audience laughing. So your whole set, you're killing, (laughs) but you can't hear anyone laughing. You look like a psycho just waiting for the laughs to die (laughs) off that nobody else hears. Yeah, no, the, the wardrobe person... You know, on the on the Huckabee show, they, there's probably there's there's two makeup ladies. They're both great, Eden and and Jennifer, and they'll watch the monitor in the back. And it, what's great and it's, it's something you don't think about, but they'll go up and take a picture of the screen when they see something that they it's like their work looks good. Like that person looks good. They look, mm. they look better up there than they did back here. And so like that's how they watch their set as opposed to a comic listening for laughs or whatever. But they also will say immediately, oh, he's getting a little runny on the left side by his ear. And the other one will go, oh, yes, he is. And as soon as there's a break, they go out there and touch Aww. him up. But it takes a lot of people for a high-quality production. Yes. A wardrobe thing, you know, uh, had one jacket that was – looking at it, it was fine, but it was it was busy. And there's a term for that when they mm-hmm. – you know, the, the thing makes those yeah, wavy they, lines. Yeah. But without all those people checking it out, then the – the easy part of performing doesn't look that good. I'm, I'm curious about what's going on right now. Like, you know, and right that's now what my I like husband to... is sitting over there looking really mean, <laughs> but he's a police officer. So, you know, that's part of his I was going to ask if, if my, uh, 
He's if, an ex-SWAT. If my brake lights or anything were off. He's an ex-SWAT guy. <clears throat> you wouldn't want to be arrested by him. Okay, hold on. Yeah, when yeah. me and Paul got reunited, because we were high school dating, high school sweethearts. When we got reunited uh, in 91, I was on Jay Leno, and uh, I forgot. See, my first husband was a fire eater. Fire eater. Yeah. And so I was lived in the world where, you know, everything's funny and entertaining. Uh, and Paul lives in the real world where people get shot and stuff. And like, I didn't get that yet. So I was on Leno. I was telling everyone on TV, the, 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 the newest, what do you call it, Paul, when you were chasing that white van into the trailer park, a drug bust? What do you call that thing? They were tracking money launders, and I started telling all the details of oh, how no. they were tracking them oh, on no. Jay Leno. Oh, no. Giving away all the... I get... I, was, I started talking about it because I was so used to just doing, like, uh, improvising whatever's yeah, on my Yeah, just talking about what's going on in like life. we're doing right now. Right. And, and it used to work, you know. Fire eater, huh? So, after I finished, I realized he, he might... Paul might get fired because I gave away the whole secret heist, whatever you call it. Right. And so I called the Tonight Show about an hour later. I was sobbing. And I said, could you please, could you please edit my interview? Leave out the part about the trailer park and the drugs and the plane. And they, <laughs> they were offended. They never asked me back. Even though you'd been on quite I, a bit, right? I was on Johnny Carson 18 times. Then I was on with Gary Shandling and... Uh, someone else when Johnny was sick. So 20 times on Johnny Carson and one time on Jay Lana or two times. And then I, they never asked me back. Let me ask you about those three guys real quick. Gary Shandling, like as an interviewer, they all have their different styles. Who did you feel most comfortable sitting on the couch Johnny talking to? Johnny Carson. Because my little story is he would make the guest look good. And here's my example. When I was on Johnny Carson, they pre-interview you. So we had like eight questions. I knew the questions. He knew the answers. But if you go off script, that's great. And Johnny said, so I hear you're married. <clears throat> Who are you married to? And I said, a fire eater. And everyone laughed. Well, when I was on Letterman, he said, so Victoria Jackson, uh, I hear you're married to a fire eater. Everyone laughed. And then I went, Yeah. <laughs> I get no laugh. Right, he got the laugh. So Letterman took mm -hmm. the laugh. Leno took the laugh. But Carson gave me the laugh every time. He always let was gracious enough to, to let me get the laugh. He, he, you know, I grew up, so I, I got out of high school, graduated in 86. So I still saw all the Johnny Carson. Then I started watching a little bit of the Leno and stuff. But Carson had that ability just to kind of put people at ease. Like you say, make them the star of things. And he was just so self-effacing yeah. you know so humble i remember maybe two three months ago they had the johnny carson channel on sirius xm they, they were playing like 20 or 30 of his best episodes and it was it was amazing to listen to a how how quick he was mm -hmm. but how well he listened to people because especially and i love letterman too but he would he's so quick on to the next thing now his his later stuff now that he's doing he's a great listener mm -hmm. he's he's very thoughtful and prepares a lot but on the show he didn't come off that way. Which but one are you talking about? The my next guest is on Netflix oh, with, with, his with David beard, Letterman. With his yeah, big with his beard. big old Santa he Claus beard. He seems to be liberally politically motivated now. Did you L notice that? A little bit. Although some of the people he's had on have been pretty 
not in the political thing at all, you know. Yeah. He had Obama on, so that was obviously. He had Kanye on. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that's the one I didn't watch. Oh. I've watched, I've watched, well, I've got two, I think, that I haven't seen. But he, he's kind of grown in his ability to, I think, since his heart attacks and all those yeah. kinds of things happened, he kind of appreciated life more. Now that he's a dad, mm-hmm. becoming a parent, you automatically switch a few gears on that you weren't firing on before. Empathy and compassion and those yeah, things. If you I'm missed selfish. it on the first thing, when you got kids, all of a sudden you've got those things. So he's come along with that. So what was the first question I interrupted that you were going to oh, say? Oh, tell me about your, you have more than one kid? Oh, we have two daughters, 34 and 25, happily married. The oldest is a Christian writer. She uh, the author of uh, Afraid of All the Things and also a book for teenage girls called He Numbered the Pores on My Face. <laughs> That's and, great. Um, yeah, and my other daughter is in this insurance office work thing, and I think she's a songwriter, dancer at heart, so... She's looking for her passion. Gotcha. So she's frustrated, creative, you think? Yeah, but she wants to have babies soon. So So she wants the stability of the job job? Mm, kind or, of. Yeah. And my, um, I have three grandchildren, and that's why we moved to Nashville to be near them. Well, how old are they? But don't you want to ask me how I got on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> that's what everybody wants to know. I know, because I've listened to other podcasts. Oh, you know? Yeah. You tell me. How did I get on Saturday? <laughs> well, the story goes. Let's hear. The story goes. So you first, from, and correct me as I go if I'm wrong. So but so you grew up, you went to Bible college for a little bit, mm-hmm. went to Furman, South mm-hmm. Carolina, mm-hmm. and then you went from there to Auburn. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious about that. What took you from South Carolina to Auburn? Was it more to start an... Because Auburn has a bit of an acting It was because I couldn't afford Furman financially, and I was on the gymnastics team. And okay. I, I quit gymnastics, and I was in my first play at Furman, but I couldn't afford to go anymore. And my brother was at Auburn, and it was cheaper. Gotcha. So you, you go to Auburn, but you don't finish out Auburn because the acting bug gets you. So is there a play at Auburn that you got into that Summer got you Stock, into Summerstock, 1980. Gotcha. Good. And you're like, hey, this is pretty cool stuff. If I'm going to do this, I got to get out of Alabama because there's not a lot of movies going on here. Boom, you go out to the West Coast. How did I get there? Uh, how did you get there? Johnny Crawford, the rifleman's son. Uh, he was oh, yeah, yeah. 33, I was 19. <clears throat> and I was doing handstands on hyd- fire hydrants and stuff to get attention. And I was doing back handsprings in the chorus line, and he was the lead. And he said, you would be good in my nightclub act. Uh, the, as the comic relief, because he sings 30 songs. So he gave me a one-way ticket to Hollywood. And my, I said, well, I'm only 19. You have to ask my parents' permission. And he called my mom. <laughs> She's sitting right over there. And, uh, Mom, why would you let your little 19-year-old girl fly to Hollywood with a 33-year-old <laughs> actor man? I don't know. I don't even remember that. No. But you did. So you it went was out very there. exciting. And so how, did, was his show uh, a local one, or did he go on the show, row with no, it and do he, some stuff he, back? It was called Going Hollywood, and um, so I went to his house in the Hollywood Hills, and I said, where do I sleep? And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, I don't sleep with men. I told you I'm a Baptist virgin. And he goes, I thought you were kidding. Well, I was doing a handstand on yeah, fire, on fire. Right now, <laughs> with my butt in his face. Okay, but uh, but I grew up that way. You know, right. I was like, 
excuse me. And so then he, I, he goes, oh, well, um, okay, why did I bring you here? I go, to be in your nightclub act. He goes, oh, yeah. So we put it together. It was very charming. Uh, he sang, you know, I'm putting on my top hat, da, 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 da. and he sang Jealousy, and I did gymnastics in front of him in a vamp costume, and then I dressed up like a an adoring fan. This was his idea. And I crashed the stage, and the bouncers take me away, you know. Anyway, we did it around town, and then I realized I had to, he said, Victoria, well, he said, what should your stage name be? And I go, I don't know. And he said, Victoria Jackson was a great stage name. That was my real name. So he looked in SAG and it wasn't there yet. So I got to have my name. Well, then he said, I can't date anyone if you're, if I have a 20 year old blonde sleeping on my couch. So could you find somewhere to live? And I was like, Okay, so I had no car, no money, so I got the newspaper from his dad, and I found a job at the Kipling Retirement Hotel, and I borrowed their bike, and I rode it down the Hollywood Hills and uh, found the place. Shirley, Shirley Temple's dad built it and, it, and it was in this kind of bad neighborhood, and so I worked there for room and board, and it was kind of, you know, when you're young, you know, you can do crazy things because... Sure. You think you're indestructible and you're not afraid and you have no reputation to uphold or anything. Right, right. So I had such an adventure just, you know, I went to the comedy store on open mic night because I thought maybe I can get an agent. If I'm doing stand-up, because it's a new thing in 1980, very few women were doing it. I thought if I could just do three minutes or something, people would see me. Maybe I could get an agent. So then I had to make up a routine. I didn't know how. And Was I the handstand if, part of the routine? Yeah, I thought if I stand on my hands and say poetry, <laughs> I'll keep their attention. Yeah. I don't think it's funny, but at least they won't stop looking at me. You know, yeah. so it was just kind of a... And who were some of the people you hung out with there in the early 80s? Well, I didn't hang out with anyone famous. I saw Howie Mandel putting that um, rubber glove on his head, and I thought, that's not funny. And he was getting a lot of stuff. I Let's see. I worked at the Variety Arts Club. That's where I met the fire eater. I was doing my act every night, and he was eating fire every night playing the piano he was 10 years older than me and he was, the, was he doing that like both at the same time like one hand on the piano one no, hand swallowing flames no he would like play and the, the, the <laughs> climax of his act was sticking fire in his and mouth. he's probably thinking man i took all these piano lessons but i still need a closer yeah <laughs> I, I, I need something big i need something big <laughs> that's the way it always is hey you're a comedian but do you act too or you're an actor can you do comedy yeah uh, one thing should be enough but it doesn't always seem to be so you so you Started doing a little bit of stand-up, and so there was, what, the comedy store and I did the improv, improv. but that was so scary. Like, all the hip, drug addict people went to the comedy store and the improv, and the Variety Arts Center was like a 30s club, so the music was, like, innocent, and Mm -hmm. the crowd was older, and they were so nice to me. I did it every night for two years. Uh, with these nice old people, well, they're not old, but I thought they were old. Sure, back I was then, twenty. <laughs> right. And um, so then the Tonight Show talent scout saw me there and said, "You want to be on the Tonight Show?" Well, that was like a couple was, years in. Uh, that was like my second year mm-hmm. there, and then I got that was my big break. And were you pretty nervous? Oh, I was so nervous, and. Um, the guy who put me on, the town scout, was Jim McCauley. Have you mm. heard of him? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
and he um, was shaking. We were backstage, and he was holding the curtain, and when they said my name, he was supposed to pull it open, and he was shaking, and I go, why are you shaking? I'm the one who has to go out there. And he goes, because if they don't like you, if Johnny doesn't like you, I get fired. <laughs> right, right. And I thought, well, I thought two things. One, well, thanks a lot for putting more pressure on me. Right. But secondly, I thought, he's taking my nervousness from me, because I thought that was so dumb that he was shaking. Yeah, he's trying to put it on him so you don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. But then I also thought, I don't want him to get fired. I better be good. <laughs> right. And and then I kind of felt like I went out of my body, uh, which I don't believe in all that stuff, but I really did. I was so nervous. I felt like I was out of my body watching myself. Yeah, I would imagine, especially, I mean, especially even then still, everybody, there weren't as many channels. Everybody, was, there was more people That's watching. Right. And so if you did well, it well, definitely led to some things. Yes, my dad said, if Johnny likes you, you have a career. And if he doesn't, you don't. And at the end, Johnny gave me the okay sign. And so I went backstage. I called my dad. And I did the handstand kind of in honor of him because mm -hmm. you know, he taught me that. And I thought, how do you use gymnastics? You know, 18 years of training. There's nothing you can use it for except being a coach. Like I wasn't good enough for the Olympics. Right, right. So, so I got to use my dad's all that he all the gymnastic into. training. Yeah, yes, yeah, so that felt good to call him, and that's pretty cool. And was he watching? I oh guess, yeah. So you were back there. And then my parents was, came to one of the Johnny Carsons, and uh, my mom was sick that night. Remember, mom? And then John, uh, Lauren Michaels must have seen me on there because uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got a phone call. Do you want to audition for Saturday Night Live tomorrow? There's a plane ticket waiting for you. Now, were you more nervous for that? Um, because I was thinking. Cause, so you you started that in '86, I think. Yeah. Right? So, so it, it had been around for a while, but like I grew up with ten or twelve years of Saturday Night Live watching. You know, like if or when I got into it, like I was, it's been on my radar the whole time. But you oh, didn't yeah. grow up watching Saturday Night Live. I never Live, watched. It didn't start it. till. Well, I never watched it, and we didn't yeah. have a TV. So, what was your like parameter or your idea of what it would be like to? I mean, you knew a little bit about them for sure. But what it was like, I but, thought. You have to be funny. Okay, when I auditioned, I just did my six minutes from from my Johnny Carson. <clears throat> Handstand, poetry, ukulele, playing, blah, blah, blah. Lorne Michaels said, you have, a, you have a very funny audition, but I'm not sure you're strong in characters and impressions. And That's uh, a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, thanks. But I, I, I said, oh, oh, and he started walking me towards the door. It was the day after my audition for Lorne in New York, and they were going to fly me home. And they said, stay an extra night. Lauren wants to interview you. It was a very short interview. And and so he said, oh, you're married. You have a baby. I had a baby then, three months old. And he's like walking me to the door. And I said, well, I can talk like that. And he goes, uh-huh. I, right. I, could, I could be a character like this. I could talk like this. And he's like, uh-huh. And, and then he said, well, what if I wanted you to be a Midwestern housewife? I go, well, I am a housewife. And, and my parents are from the Midwest. And he goes, uh-huh. And he goes, or Diane Keaton. And I go, well, she just wears men's clothes and looks at the ground a lot. <laughs> and so I, was, I could feel my big chance slipping away. Uh -huh. So he's like, thank you. So I leave. I'm flying home. And I'm like, Man, I was so close. Like I, I still, I didn't understand what Saturday Night Live was. I knew John Belushi had a sword and a bee costume, and 
and I, I've seen in my back of my head Gilda Radner throw herself against a wall or something, but I hadn't really watched it. Well, I went home and I rented Tina Turner, Diane Keaton, a bunch of people, and I tried to imitate them because I realized I was going to be on Johnny Carson in two weeks. And I thought, hey, what if I extended my audition for Lauren on national TV? That mu- that have to impress him. And I thought, well, I'm not. And then I, I, you know, I watched Tina Turner. And I was like, what's love got to do? And so I, I realized I'm terrible at impressions. So I thought, well, I'll just try. And 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 even if they're bad, if people laugh, then right. that's the goal. So I went on Johnny Carson like my 18th or something time, or maybe it was my 10th then. And then I said, I'm auditioning for a show, and I have to do characters and impressions. Can I try a few on you, see if you can guess them? And then Johnny Carson said, sure. And I said, um, oh, Johnny, I don't know why I'm here. Uh, can you go to a commercial? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything to say. He goes, Terry Gar. And I go, yeah. And then I go, boy, the way Glenn Miller played songs that made yep. the hit parade. And he goes, Edith Bunker. And I go, yeah. And then I go, um, what's love got to do, got to do with it? And he goes, Tina Turner. And I go, yeah. And then I go, John, why do you want to work for my company? And then he goes, I don't know, huh? Betty Davis? And I go, no. And then he goes, uh, who is it? And I go, I don't know. I made her up. It's a character. I just made up a character. (laughs) And he's like, well, then how am I supposed to guess? And then everyone laughed really hard. And I knew I was going to get SNL that that minute. And uh, then I got a call, you know, about 10 days later. And they said, congratulations, you're in the cast of Saturday Night Live. There's a ticket waiting for you at LAX. Bring your you know, ukulele or whatever. So I brought my baby, the fire eater, a suitcase with diapers in it. But anyway, changed my life. It was so exciting. But then it's hard to live after it. I could only imagine. Like he's Nothing else can top that. So the rest of your life is like, I mean, even acting jobs. Like we saw like a movie star every week, the top music Mm -hmm. act or whatever, uh, I I had to learn characters and impressions on the job, so I kind of did. Uh, and the funny thing is, ever since I left the show, I've been trying to think of a character. I never did really come up with a character. And they said, well, you're the character. I'm like, but I, I really, I can't figure out how to make a church lady or a liar. Uh-huh. I don't, my brain won't, I, I don't know. I can, like, okay, so my friend was making fun of someone, and they go... Hi, I'm Harriet. I'm a blue-blooded liver from my head to my toes. Uh, Obama, I love him. Why? Uh, cute baby pictures. Uh, herb garden. Uh, free condoms. You're never too young or too old. I mean... <laughs> I, I hate hate. That's why I hate Republicans. And so, I mean, I can... Okay, that's a character, right? That's a character right? for sure. But I didn't make it up. I stole it from my friend Fran. Who's just like that? No, or... she was making fun of someone because she's talented. So she's and I'm like, hang can, around. I, I, can I steal that from you? Can I pay you 50 bucks for that? <laughs> anyway, my whole life, I've been trying to do impressions and characters, and I'm getting better at it. But like, there, no one wants to pay me for it now. Yeah. Well, it's a thing. It's a constant thing. No matter what you've done in the past, there's always something you're trying to pull from it and, and 
take from it and, and you know grow with it. Your music stuff I always thought was was right on, and you still play little uke. Oh, where did when did you pick up the ukulele? Was that my mom got me a uke when I was ten? Okay, so you had it pretty young, just for fun, because mm. my brother played guitar and my fingers wouldn't stretch like. Mm. Let's see, I, I'm so spoiled on a U because it's four strings. How could anyone do G? No, F on a guitar. Yeah, so I stay away from that trouble. one myself. A minor and F, it's just too much work. What do you play? A uh, little guitar. Yeah, forget those. Just do <laughs> G. No, do C. No, D7 is pretty easy. But anyway, yeah. So um, the ukulele has been very good to me because it lets me express my pain. Like when I had cancer four years ago, I made up this song called It's a Broken World, Baby. And I think I saw that, right? I yeah, saw that I on the show. Yeah, I sang it on Huckabee, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, I remember Paul was washing the dishes because even though he's a helicopter pilot, he likes to clean the house. And he's washing dishes. I said, Paul, I think this might be a good song. It's a broken world, baby. And I start singing and he starts sm- clattering the dishes loudly so he couldn't hear it. <laughs> He takes my talent so for granted. <laughs> I'm using this public opportunity to say that to you, Paul. And uh, anyway, yeah. So pain. I think all good art comes from pain. And when I was going to ask you another thing about the music, too. It, now, this I could be way off because it's, it's many years ago. But I think the first time I worked with you doing comedy was at the Cleveland Improv at the Powerhouse. Remember that place? Cleveland? Remember, it was in the flats. Did we do it together? Yeah, and I, I want to say, now this is me trying to remember, but did you used to have somebody play a little keyboard on the stage with you? Kelly Moran. Right. He died. Right, and I think it was right after that. Like I think that was one of the oh. first weeks after he passed away that you were up there doing your all by oh. yourself, if well, I remember right. Yes, because when I started doing stand-up for an hour instead of six minutes mm-hmm. after SNL to raise money to raise family, um, because my first husband, you know, took a lot of money. I think I'm not supposed to say that. Well, anyway, I um I didn't have an act. I did not have an hour, and I was desperately uh, I was milking the SNL thing, and I, I was like, and Kelly would play the piano, and I pretended I was Jewel. My bazookas are so large, now my bank accounts too. Remember that, Paul? I mean, I was desperate, and I was getting a little too dirty, just, just a tiny well, bit. The, the clubs try, kind the of, clubs, the clubs start squeezing that in. Sque- yeah. I was so, I had no material, and I, I knew they were laughing at things that were like, I mean, I would never sing that now, but I, I was so nervous, and I didn't have an hour, and and I mean, I didn't do anything dirty. Like for a church, it would be for a club. I was the cleanest person sure. in the club. But uh, you, so that Ohio one—that was never an easy room. That but that was, was one hard. I I went to the most at that time. I lived in Columbus. But I want to tell everyone: there's so much rejection in show business, even for the most famous people, like Sally Fields and everything. People, sh- if they have to do it, they have to do it. And if they love it, they have to do it. But they shouldn't be sad if they get rejected because um, all successful people had millions of rejections. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're a Christian, you have to live for the glory of God. But he puts something in your heart 
that you passionately love to do and try to do it for his glory, like no dirty jokes. And um, like, don't sing about Jules assets <laughs> right. for a cheap laugh. That's, that's like being the halftime show with Shakira and JLo, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm guilty. Well, I'm with a hypocrite the, to- the club is the hardest place to be. Well, it shouldn't be. It should be no different than any other place well, you go. But the, the expectations and the oh. usually the people you're working with. And this yeah. is why I liked working with you. Uh, I can't remember if I was emceeing or featuring, but it was like I could invite people out to the show. Yeah. Too many times when I moved up the ladder, the first one or two people before me were so dirty. Yeah. If I did invite somebody out, they didn't last until I got up there. They're like, oh, we had to go wait in the parking lot. Until- it's so easy to make a joke clean, and it's way better anyway. Well, I know you guys got some things to do today, probably, so I'll, I'll let you go here in a second. But any last piece of advice you have for somebody, let's say that, look look back at 19-year-old you, somebody that's, let's say, a female comic out there, like, should I go to Los Angeles? Should I work on my craft longer? Should I, mm. should I, I mean, do, you could look back and pick a million different ways you could have mm. gone, but is there something you could tell those people right now, something that they can focus on that's in their control that will help them in the long run? Okay, I think work clean. Uh, um, I think they should go to L.A. I think all the opportunities are there. And it's a kind of a small town. If you go on stage and you have a good set, everyone's going to know about it pretty quick. I didn't know that when I was young. But now that I look back, you know, word of mouth, I think they should... Uh, perform every chance they get because the more you do stand up you get better and better and better like when i started getting good at it was when i had like four nights in a row two or three times a month which is hard to get books so just start with any time you can get in front of an audience you get you'll get better and better and better you'll get more and more confident i think it's i didn't know how to write an act but I think most people, it seems like they write an act about something that bothers them a lot. So I wrote my act about why I hate Miami. And, and I could, I noticed whatever, whenever I was with friends or people and I, I would talk about Miami, I, I would always get a laugh when I said Cuban retired or naked. And I wasn't joking. I was just taught telling my life story and just make a note, a mental note or write down every time you say something that makes everyone laugh. Self-deprecation is magic key because you're making fun of yourself. That's the secret. You're not making fun of other people. And uh, also makes people love you more if you're the underdog. And it's humble like Jesus wants us to be. And um, that's, that's all I can That's think. pretty solid. That's, a, that's an entire <sighs> college curriculum in less than a minute. <sighs> so well done. Hey, thanks for coming in today. Oh, you're awesome. And I'll send them to your website and everything on the way out. But thanks again. Oh, thank you, Rick. You bet. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Victoria Jackson. I know I did. Uh, It's also fun getting to meet her husband again, as well as meeting her mom for the first time and her future sister-in-law, all hanging out with us during the podcast that afternoon. Lots of fun. And if you want to find out more about Victoria Jackson, you got to go to victoriajackson.com. If you type that in, you're going to find all kinds of links to past videos and songs that she's put out as well a lot of her skits on saturday night live that you may have forgotten that you knew lots of good stuff walking down memory lane checking that out 
And uh, looking forward to see what she's got up ahead. I know she's got a documentary in the works. Lots of cool things around the corner. So thanks again to her and her family for coming out and joining the podcast. I did want to read a quick review left by our Patreon supporter, Dr. Chester Goad. He says, I originally signed up for one of Rick's online courses and plowed through it as soon as possible because he knows what he's talking about. And it's obvious he cares and wants aspiring comics and even seasoned comics to be more successful. He's got that right. The School Last podcast is no different. Tons of great information, great conversations with great and funny people. Rick proves that when you have laughter in common, you can talk about just about anything and learn from each other. I also like the generous way his guests share information and tips. I'm learning comics are some of the most generous people out there in the creative world. If you want to learn more about comedy and the business of comedy, this is the podcast where you start and where you grow. Hey, thanks, Chester, for leaving the review. Again, thanks for sponsoring us through Patreon. If you're new to listening and you don't know what that's all about, you can support the podcast through recurring monthly donation numerically of your choice. It could be as little as a dollar. I have some people contributing $20 a month uh, for the podcast. That helps me get this thing edited and helps me uh, keep putting it out there through the different channels. Anyway, you can learn more about that by going to schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks to all of our podcast supporters for making this thing work. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay funny, and stay coronavirus free. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.